I haven't said a lot about how that process of transformation actually works. And in part, that's because of how it does actually work. There's a, a wonderful saying that I heard once, the will is transformed by experience, not by information. And yet the ch in the church, we tremendously overestimate the power of information to bring about transformation when what is really needed are concrete bodily practices that will teach you the truth about the spiritual realities of the kingdom of God. A woman can read books and watch videos and attend medical school lectures about delivering a baby. And of course, those things have real value and they can be helpful. But a woman who's had a baby knows something by experience that she could never get from a lecture. And in the same way, I can teach you about, for instance, fasting and about how it seems to turbocharge your prayer life, but until you combine fasting and prayer for yourself and experience this great increase in power in prayer, you really don't know enough about fasting to be transformed by it. And Christians today, and especially Reformed and Presbyterian Christians, are in grave danger of seeing the Christian life as merely the mastery of a complex set of interrelated doctrines. And so when you preach to them about discipleship and about sanctification, you can almost see the wheels turning in people's minds, trying to integrate new information into their existing conceptual grid, but all too often, that's all the further that it goes. And it was for me for many years. It, it never made it into the realm of direct experience of God and, and His gracious activity in my life, where I learned by experience that God is powerful and He's wise and He's kind, and therefore I can confidently rely on Him to care for me that I can hand my life over to God and trust Him to manage it down to the smallest details and to manage it far better than I could ever manage it by myself. But at some point, we just have to run the risk of that happening. Because while information is not sufficient to transform the will, it is necessary at some level. Just please understand that the things that I'm going to be teaching you are meant to be put into practice, not merely mentally digested. And if you don't put them into practice, you won't be transformed. It's just that simple. And they would be best put into practice in something like a small group or a Sunday school class where we meet regularly with fellow believers to unpack our experiences together and where we can pray for and support one another and where we can say, I think you've gone off the rails here or I see something here that you need to address or just to say, good, good job. Because the Christian life is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. But before we can begin the systematic pursuit of human transformation together under God, we need to lay some groundwork. We have to build a foundation. And I don't simply mean we need to build a conceptual foundation. I mean you have to put these things into regular practice and achieve some degree of success before you can move to the next uh, step. And the first thing that you must put into place with the help of God is found in verse 3 of Colossians 3 which reads, you have died. You have died. Jesus talks about this also, doesn't he? Turn in your Bibles, if you've got a Bible, to, to Luke, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9. Luke 
Luke chapter 9 and verses 23 through 25. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I like that translation, himself. We're used to his soul, and we think about the invisible part of us that goes to heaven when we die. No, it's your whole self, your body, and your mind, and your spirit, and your relationships to other people. You, you lose your whole self by gaining the world. There are a couple of ways that the Bible talks about this, and they are both found right here in the words of Jesus in this passage, and taken together, they create a composite picture that helps to keep us from going off the rails and committing terrible errors concerning this issue, and those terrible errors have repeatedly manifested themselves in the history of the church, and they have been very destructive, so we want to avoid those. And the two ways that Jesus speaks about this are the death of the self and of a settled posture of daily self-denial. Now, this necessity of death to self or a life of daily self-denial is understood clearly and has been understood clearly throughout the whole of the Christian tradition. You can pick up books both ancient and more recent, and you can go to Catholic sources or Eastern Orthodox sources or Lutherans or Wesleyans or Anglicans, and of course to the Reformed, the Charismatics understand it to one degree or another. Everybody gets that this is necessary, and they say remarkably consistent things about it. John Calvin, for instance, was particularly clear on this. Calvin said, the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves. And in another place, he says, for as the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves, so the only haven of safety is to have no other will, no other wisdom than to follow the Lord wherever he leads. Let this, then, be the first step to abandon ourselves and devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. And then Calvin continues. He says, by service, I mean not only that which consists of verbal obedience, but by that which, by which the mind, divested of its own carnal feelings, implicitly obeys the call of the Spirit of God. This transformation, which Paul calls the renewing of the mind in Romans 12.2 and Ephesians 4.23, though it is the first entrance of life, was unknown to all the philosophers. And as a, a matter of fact, Calvin said that a good shorthand way for understanding the whole Christian life is self-denial. Jesus speaks about this in another place, in Luke as well. And his words are quite shocking. And we find this passage in just a few chapters later in Luke 14 and in verse 25. And Jesus says, 
Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's interesting, isn't it, that, he, that he, he starts with the family. He starts with wives and husbands and brothers and sisters and parents and children. And he starts with the family and, and with the pressures that other people put on us to do things that God doesn't want us to do or to stop doing things that God does want us to do. And it also includes the wrong things that we do in order to try and benefit people that we're in a binding relationship with. You see this very often with parents who want certain things for their children, for instance. Perhaps more than the children want those things themselves, judging by the child's commitment and work ethic and the pursuit of that supposed goal. And so a parent will come in and will try and bulldoze any obstacles out of the way so that the child gets, for instance, the playing time on the court or the field that the parent thinks the child deserves. I got kind of a ringside seat for some of this when Laura coached volleyball in Sturgis, South Dakota. It wasn't brought so much to bear on her as it was the person above her and the athletic director. And the parent wants that child to be playing more. Even if the child's work ethic doesn't merit it, even if the child's level of skill doesn't merit more playing time. And so this self-obsessed parent, under the guise of just advocating for their child, pushes. And they start pushing. And they push a little harder. Maybe they bully the coach. Maybe they manifest fits of temper or aggression. They go over the coach's head to the athletic director or the principal. Or if they're connected well enough to the superintendent of schools. Maybe if they're more given to carrot than stick, they get involved with the program to become part of the ruling clique and try to accumulate enough social capital and influence that they can get what they want that way. Or maybe if they have money, they promise donations of equipment or resources to the program if their kid gets more playing time. We saw this kind of thing within the last year or so with these Hollywood parents who are basically bribing their kids' way into Ivy League schools. The poster child for me, I can't remember her name, but I can remember her face, was a, 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 a young lady who was a C student who'd never been in a boat smaller than a, a yacht and who uh, got into Stanford on the basis of her amazingly successful high school rowing career, which didn't exist. And as near as I could tell, this girl was dumber than a bag of hammers. But she got into Stanford, which means that somebody else who deserved it didn't get into Stanford. And you think about what's she going to do when she gets to Stanford and she starts classes, and it's really obvious that she is not the brightest bulb in the Christmas tree. Are they going to fail her? Or do mommy and daddy have a, a budget and a plan for that as well? And the FBI investigated because that's actually a federal crime and some parents got short prison or jail sentences and we say, well, good. But it's the same sin behind everything, even if it's not a federal crime. It's the same sin whether it happens in Hollywood or in Sturgis, South Dakota 
or in Youngstown, Ohio, or at some major university, or even some small high school. It's the same sin. It, if you think about what happens when, when that pushing, that, that self-absorbed, I will have my own way for the good of my child. It's all altruistic, of course. What, what happens? Well, first of all, it damages the soul of the parent, doesn't it? It also tends to produce a kid who has a giant sense of entitlement and self-importance. It deprives other kids of the playing time that they merit, and so it's a kind of stealing. It can and has cost people jobs and careers. It's either a form of sinful anger, which Jesus forbids, or it's a form of bribery, and God is on record as one who hates bribes. It creates enmity between the teammates as one who doesn't deserve something gets, uh, gets put forward, and one who does deserve something is passed over. All of this damages human souls, but the parent who's pushing it has deluded themselves into thinking that they're just trying to, be, to help their kid be the best that they can. And that's just one small example of the way that these relationships can and often do go wrong between husbands and wives and parents and children, brothers and sisters. And Jesus cuts through all of our deluded self-justifications and he says, if you are a disciple of mine, my commandments and my teachings will now govern all of these relationships. If you're going to be a disciple of mine, you have to obey me and you have to submit to me. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So it's not like I can call myself a disciple and engage in this. Jesus says they, they, you can't. And and it's interesting, isn't it? Because we don't want to hear that. How many of you weak-souled men out there are afraid to cross your wives, even when you know what she's wanting is wrong? How many of you weak-souled women out there are afraid to cross your husbands when they expect you to go along and participate in things that Jesus Christ doesn't want you to do? How many of you parents are enslaved to your children's sense of entitlement? A sense of entitlement that you created by never saying no. How many of you adult children are feeding a parent's sense of self-importance and sinful pride because you're still a cowering seven-year-old child on the inside instead of a, a 50 or 60-year-old grown person that, like you actually are? Jesus says you can't be his disciple and be in that condition. Now, he's not saying he won't let you. What he's saying is that you cannot succeed even if you try. If I say you can't drive a car if you're blind, I'm not saying I won't let you. I'm saying you can't succeed even if I do let you. And Jesus is saying these things are incompatible with discipleship. You can't do them both. You can't be at rest in one and be my disciple on the other hand. Now, one of the subtle traps that we tell ourselves here is that we say that giving into the illegitimate demands and expectations of others is about serving them and loving them and showing them grace. By the way, the Bible never tells you to show grace to another person. The only place the Bible talks about grace is God giving you grace. 
And most of the time when we talk about people showing each other grace, what they mean is you're going to sin and you're going to do something awful and I'm not going to talk about it. And that way you can feel good about your sin. That's not grace either. For instance, if you have a demanding parent who has dominated you inappropriately for decades with inappropriate demands on your time and it's damaged your marriage and it's cost you money or whatever, and you know it's wrong, and you probably feel some degree of resentment, which is often a good indicator of what's really going on. I mean, you, you don't mind helping, but this is beyond that. This is domineering. This is, this is power games. That parent's sin, fundamentally, is pride. It's a demand that the self would be catered to. And your sin is cowardice. It's a fear of what would happen if you didn't. And that sinful pride on the part of the parent is destroying them. That sinful pride will drag their soul down to hell if they don't deal with it under Christ. Think of, think of it this way. If, if your parent was a junkie and they called you up and said, would you buy drugs for me? Would you? If they were a drunk, would you buy them alcohol? If they were dominated by lust, would you procure pornography for them? If they were in an adulterous relationship, would you let them use your house for their rendezvous? Clearly not. If you love them and take the words of Jesus seriously, you would never do those things to enable that parent to destroy themselves further. Well, self-absorption and pride don't make you fall down in the middle of the road like alcohol does. But in the spiritual realm, pride and self-absorption are about the worst things that can grip a person. The devil actually became the devil on account of pride, and that's not something that you want to enable in mom and dad if you love them. So you see why Jesus says that self-denial, the daily taking up the cross, so often begins with our closest relationships. It's because those are the places where the most damage is done. And they're often the most resistant to what needs to be done in order to correct things and bring about shalom in the family system. They're also generally the first place our commitment to Jesus will be put to the test. Your employer is not liable to seek you out and persecute you immediately because you become a follower of Jesus. But just try not doing something mom wants you to do because you became a follower of Jesus. And you'll feel the pressure pretty quickly. And so he speaks here hyperbolically in terms of hate. And clearly, he's not telling us to hate our relatives. He's, he's saying that our love for him and our determination to obey him should be so strong and so vibrant that any competing demands on our loyalty are simply unthinkable. And if you stop saying how high every time mom or dad says jump, that's the first weapon that's going to be deployed, isn't it? Well, you don't love me. And you have to be ready for that in your heart. And you have to realize that Jesus says that to love someone is to desire their well-being as God defines it and to be willing to do all that is in your power to help them secure that well-being. And so you are helping them and you are loving them, or you're at least not adding to their harm by refusing to play the old roles. The other thing that Jesus, the other way rather that Jesus invites us to think about this first move into discipleship and a life of spiritual transformation is death to self, death to self. 
And he presents this to us with the idea first, in the idea of taking up our cross. And in his day, that must have been a shocking thing to say, especially before the crucifixion took place. Because a person who was carrying their cross was carrying the piece of lumber that was going to be used to kill them when they arrived at the place of execution. And secondly, it comes in his statement that those who seek to save their lives will lose it, but whoever loses their lives for Jesus and the sake of the kingdom will save it. And Jesus isn't talking about being martyred here, though he was clear in other places that being a disciple could conceivably result in our physical death for his sake. No, no, he's trying, he's trying to save our lives, I'm sorry, trying to save our lives in this context should be seen as the, all the extraordinary efforts that people who live apart from God go through to try and secure themselves, to try and enhance themselves and indulge themselves and promote themselves in the world. Many of those who profess to be Christians are actually just trying to enlist God's help in their ongoing project of life enhancement. And you can tell because their lives are not visibly centered on self-denial and death to self for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. And they bring it to church. I just heard this week about a person who used to come to church here and they did not receive something that they thought they should have received, but it doesn't appear to me that they had a right to it. And they just left and they never showed up again because they were offended that they didn't get what they thought they ought to get. And they didn't even start going to another church. They just stopped going to church at all. And you have to say to yourself, what is it that you thought you were doing here? Why, why were you here? And the answer is they were here to enlist our help in saving their lives, preserving their, enhancing their lives, their, their project of self-absorption. They wanted us to participate in that, and when we didn't do it correctly, they got mad and stomped away. Well, if saving your life in this verse is trying to enhance your lost self and preserve your lost self without reference to God, then losing yourself or losing your life is precisely the opposite. And the modern writer who has most clearly and carefully thought about this is Dallas Willard. Listen to what he says. He says, but what is this self-denial or death to self, which goes hand in hand with the restoration of the soul and eventually the whole person? At first, it sounds like some dreadfully negative thing that aims to annihilate us. And frankly, from the point of view of the ruined soul, self-denial is and always, uh, will always be every bit as brutal as, as it seems to most people on the first approach. The ruined life is not to be enhanced, but replaced. We must simply lose our life, that ruined life about which most of us complain so much anyway, those who have found their life or soul shall lose it, Jesus says, but while those who have lost their life or soul for my sake shall find it. And again, whoever aims to save their life shall lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake shall find it. For what have you gained by possessing the entire world if in the process you forfeit your life or your soul, you lose yourself? What would you trade your very soul for? And in another place he says, there will come a time in the experience of the apprentice of Jesus where it is appropriate to speak of our being dead to self. 
And there is no one way that this comes to us. I think, and the language here must be handled carefully, it has been the source of much misunderstanding and harm in the past. But the fact that it represents, that it represents is a fundamental, indispensable element of the renovation of the heart and soul and life. Being dead to self is the condition where the mere fact that I do not get what I want does not surprise or offend me and has no control over me. Faithful servants of God know the secret, and many have left their testimony. George Mueller of Bristol, England said, there was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world its approval or censure, die to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Small wonder that one said of Mueller that he had the 23rd Psalm written all over his face. We often speak of those who sleep soundly as being dead to the world. And by that we mean that what is happening around them does not disturb them, that they are unconscious of it and are doing nothing with reference to it. There is an important lesson here, though not a precise parallel. The one who is dead to self will certainly not even notice some things that others would. For example, things such as social slights, verbal put-downs, and innuendos or physical discomforts. But many other rebuffs to the dear self, as the philosopher Immanuel Kant called it, will be noticed still and often quite clearly. However, if we are dead to self to any significant degree, these rebuffs will not take control of us, not even to the point of disturbing our feelings or our peace of mind. We will, as St. Francis of Assisi said, wear the world like a loose garment, which touches us in a few places and there lightly. Loved ones, Christian spiritual formation, where we're changed into the likeness of Jesus, has to rest on a foundation of death to self. And it cannot proceed except to the degree that self-denial or death to self is being firmly laid and maintained in our lives. You have to surrender You have to lay down your will to self and die. You have to lay down your opinions. You have to lay down your preferences. You have to lay down your demands, your tastes, your will. Lay down your slavery to the approval or disapproval of the worldlings. Lay down your slavery to the approval or disapproval of your family, your friends, even of your fellow Christians who can be every bit as silly as the worldlings are from time to time. Just lay it all down. Just decide to be done with it. And then quietly begin to do those little things that the Lord brings into your path day in and day out that reinforce the habit of realizing that you are not the bright center of the universe. You say to yourself, I don't think I'm the bright center of the universe. Yeah, you really do at a deep level because if you didn't, you wouldn't sin. That's just the fact of it. Pick up the shoes in the hallway instead of screaming about them. Do the, at my house, we have a demon. He lives right over a sink full of dirty dishes. I walk in there and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's even fuller than it was 10 minutes ago. 
Don't these people, don't they rinse? Don't they, do you have to have a new cup every time you want to drink a water? I mean, you know, and, and it starts. And, and I, get, I get myself into a state. It works on my wife, too. And we've had arguments for decades about the dishes. You know what God's telling me to do now? The dishes. And you know what he's telling me, how he's telling me to do it? With my mouth shut. And it's hard. And there's a, and he, and he, and he comes in and he starts speaking. To, Can you believe that she left that without soaking it? You're going to have to scrub that with a jackhammer to get that off. Shut up, demon, go away. Because he wants to inflame myself. And there's nothing wrong with doing the dishes. Heck, it's not even that hard. I just rinse them off and, well, I'm, I'm anal. I, put the, I, I wash the dishes and then I use the dishwasher to sterilize them. Because these new dishwashers don't wash the dishes. Do they? they take four hours and you come out and it's like got eggs still stuck to it. And you're like, why did I even bother for four hours to put that thing in there when it can't take scrambled egg off? But it can't. So I wash the dishes and then I put them in there to sterilize them. I'm a good dish doer. And the Lord's like, well, then go with your strength, boy, and shut up. <laughs> How about stop complaining? There's a good one. Some of you would cut your daily word count in half if you stopped complaining. Jesus tells us in Philippians 2.14 that we are to do everything without grumbling or complaining. What is covered by everything? Everything. So what should you complain about? How about this? Follow the person who is going five miles per hour below the speed limit with tranquility of heart instead of rage. then you lost already, <laughs> even though you're already late for work. You know, you get that one person, it's that little old lady, and she can't even see, all you see is knuckles on the steering wheel. <laughs> and she's weaving along, and she's going five, 10 miles an hour in the speed limit, and she's not, you know, and, and, you, and you think to yourself, doesn't she have someplace else to be right now? And Jesus says, no, I put her right here, just for you. This is, my, this is my training program for you. You get behind Knuckles and you drive five miles below the speed limit with her and you bless her while you're doing it. Say no to people who desperately need to be told no. Maybe that's your mom. Maybe that's your spouse. Maybe that's your children. Say yes to people that you don't want to say yes to because you're trying to hoard your time and they're like these time sponges, these little hoovers that come and suck all the time out of your life. It's like, they show up and they're like, hi, aren't you glad to see me? And you're like, oh no, <laughs> the time sponge is here. Just say, Lord, you brought the per this person here. Take some money that you were going to spend on your pleasures and make a sacrificial gift out of it. At first, it will be very, very hard, and you will be very conscious of the sacrifices that you're making, and you will know why Jesus calls it death, because it'll feel like dying. But that's just withdrawal symptoms. You're coming off the narcotic of self. And Jesus is right there with you, helping you, and he wants to do this. He wants this for you.
And he will help you, but, but he will not do it to you. He will help you, but he will not do it to you. But he'll help you a lot if he just sees you making a move. You, you know, here's what the fundamental problem is. You know when you're, you're like on a, a country highway and they've got the, the telephone poles down the side of the highway, just miles and miles of telephone poles. And if you look at the telephone pole that's closest to you, it looks really big. And if you look at the telephone pole that's 400 yards down the road or half a mile down the road, it looks much smaller. Now, it's the same size as the telephone pole that's right next to you, but it looks smaller. And for us, our egos, our fallen egos, are basically committing the same error as believing that the telephone pole that's right here closest to me is actually the largest telephone pole. Because the self that is closest to you is yourself. And you see yourself and you look very big and all the other selves out there look very small and you think, well, I must be quite an important self because I'm such a big self. And God says, no, all the selves are the same size. Quit believing lies. And by the way, I'm the number one self and you should be focused on me. And that'll heal your soul instead of killing your soul. It'll get easier and easier and you'll settle into this lovely habit and pattern of self-denial and you'll do it fairly quickly. Though you'll have to be faithful and you'll have to be diligent to maintain your sobriety. But once you start to build this foundation in your life, some other things will very quickly follow. And they are wonderful things. They are amazing things. Listen to, to Dallas Willard again, and with this, we're going to close. To accept with confidence in God that I do not immediately have to have my way releases me from the great pressure that anger, unforgiveness, and the need to retaliate imposes upon my life. This by itself is a huge transformation of the landscape of our life. It removes the root and source of by far the greater part of human evil that we have to deal with in our world. Thus, Paul directed the Christians in Thessalonica to, quote, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Jesus commanded not to resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And Peter calls us to follow Jesus in not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. That's 1 Peter 3.9. These remarkable teachings and examples, which do so much to immediately transform life, all presuppose that one has laid down the burden of having to have one's own way. You, you realize that? It's a burden. It, it clouds your mind. It wears you out. You think, I'm so tired trying to make everybody do what I want them to do. It's so hard, Lord. Please help me. And God's like, I'm not going to help you in that project. Oh, Lord, that's what you're here for. You're here, you're here to help me to get everybody else to do what I want them to do. He said, no, I'm not. It's a burden. Lay down the burden of having to have your own way. You can't even begin to understand them, much less follow them, except from a posture of self-denial, firmly supported on confidence. And this based, in turn, in a strong experience of God's all-sufficient presence in your life. 
But to step with Jesus into the path of self-denial immediately breaks the ironclad grip of sin over human personality and opens the way to a fuller and ever fuller restoration of radical goodness to the soul. It accesses incredible supernatural strength for life because we must become active agents in this progression from strength to strength. You see, what you find out when you stop trying to take care of yourself and promote yourself and secure yourself is that God is there and God can be trusted and that God will do for you what you can't do for yourself and that he will care for you and that his promises are true and you will learn it by experience. You'll learn it by experience. And you'll be like, I don't know. I don't know why I ever thought that it was a good idea to do it any other way. Because it's just not. Lord, we come before you this morning, and if I have said anything that is unhelpful or untrue, please cause it to be forgotten. If I have said anything that is true and good and right, let the shaft of the arrow go home, for it is from your spirit. As we progress further together during Lent down this road, where we try and understand spiritual transformation, let it not be an intellectual exercise. Let it be something that we begin to put into effect in our lives. And Father, meet us quickly. Meet our feeble efforts with lavish rewards so that we are encouraged and we taste and we see that you are good. Amen and amen. As we begin this journey through Lent this week and over these next weeks, um, we're going to begin to learn a, a new, um, new arrangement of an old song, a song many of you are familiar with, a song that says, Lord, as I am, I come to you just as I am. You know that hymn, just as I am. But this new arrangement says, um, here's how I come. Here are the things that I bring that are true of me and that I need for you to transform in my life. I can't do them on my own, and so I'm going to come to you, and I believe when I come that I find everything I need in you. And the chorus says this. I'll teach it to you, and then we'll sing. I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms. Praise God just as I am. Will you stand? Let's try that together, that chorus, and we'll sing the entire song. I come broken. I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And 
and I'm welcomed with open arms. Praise God, just as I am. Let's sing that first stanza, just as I am without one plea. Just as I am without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. glad he invites you to come before you get yourself together just as I am just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot to I come, I come broken, Lord. I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms. Praise God just as I am. I would be lost. Just as I am, I would be lost. But mercy and grace, my freedom bought. And now to glory in the cross, in your cross, O Lamb of God. I come, I come, let's come in glory in the cross. I come broken to be mended, I come wounded to be healed, I come desperate to be rescued, I come empty to be filled, I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms. Praise God, just as I am. I come broken, I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty 
to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms. Praise God, just as I am. Praise, praise God, just as I am. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. And may you wash the peanut butter knife without complaining. Amen.